It's finally here and you can get your hands on your own copy of Art Curious, stories of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. You'll love the book, which includes some never-before-shared tales of art history. Stories about America's favorite grandpa of graphic design and how he became radicalized in the 1960s. How two women may have beaten Vasily Kandinsky to being deemed the world's first abstract artists. And a deeper dive into the debate over who created one of the most shocking artworks of all time. Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History, published by Penguin Books, is available right now wherever you buy your books, ebooks, and audiobooks. You can also read more about it and order your copy, and one for a friend, at artcuriousbook.com. That's artcuriousbook.com. The Art Curious Podcast is primarily sponsored by Anchorlite. For more information, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. Picture this. The year is 2015. The place is New York City. Imagine a large room filled with neatly lined chairs and hundreds of art enthusiasts holding numbered paddles in their hands. Everyone listens intently to a British man in a finely tailored suit, wearing an iridescent purple tie and speaking in a buttery accent. He stands at the podium that is marked with only a single word written in gold letters. Christie's, it declares proudly. As a large wall display rotates nearby, a well-lit piece of art commands the attention of everyone present. The sharply dressed man begins the auction ritual by introducing Lot 8A, declaring it to be, quote, the beautiful Modigliani, and announces the starting price of $75 million. Next crane as onlookers view the canvas for the first time. On it is a darkly lined nude. A woman, of course, as most nudes are. She lounges on a bright red duvet, a soft blue pillow beneath her neck, and her oil-painted face looking up seductively at the viewer, all heavy-lidded eyes, rouged cheeks, and subtly smiling red lips. The composition cuts off just above her knees and wrists, so, of course, the focal point is her starkly nude chest and torso. She's beguiling. And so the bidding begins. Suddenly, prices are being shouted back and forth across the room, rising higher and higher, until finally all attention is focused upon two Christie's employees talking quickly via telephone to two restless potential buyers. The numbers climb on the screen next to the auctioneer, and the gathered crowd gapes at the ascending price, even laughing with incredulity. With one final wave of the hand, the auctioneer proclaims, all done at $152 million, dropping his gavel and hitting the podium with a resounding sold. Yes, you heard that right. The total sale price of this particular Amadeo Modigliani was $152 million. And that wasn't even considering the auction house fees or a buyer's premium, which increased the out-of-pocket amount to $170.4 million. Who was the buyer for this purchase? The man who dished out that sky-high amount for new coucher was Liu Yichan, a taxi driver turned billionaire slash art collector from Shanghai, China, a man whose family now owns two private art museums and who purportedly paid that full $170.4 million amount on his Amex card. What a life. It was staggering. 
and at the time, it broke the record for the second highest price ever paid at auction for a work of art, and it afforded Modigliani elite access to the so-called 100 million club, an obviously extremely small and exclusive club of mostly dead white male artists, including Pablo Picasso, Francis Bacon, Edvard Munch, Alberto Giacometti, Andy Warhol, and Jean-Michel Basquiat, our one diversity candidate here. But a question for many people remains. Although beautiful pieces, what really makes these artists' works worth nine figures? What contributes to these astronomical prices for a canvas with some paint on it? I guess at the end of the day, it's worth whatever someone is willing to pay for it. But could there be something more? Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. This season, season eight, we're exploring examples of some of the most expensive artworks ever sold at auction and beyond, and why they garnered so much money. Beginning today with Amadeo Modigliani's New Couché. This is the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. While the business of art auctions has some non-transparent inner workings, we do know that there are a few major factors that can establish the worth or value of a piece of art. First, it begins with the subject matter, what the work of art represents, and how that subject matter fits into the artist's body of work. Is this a rare scene? Is it part of a famous series? Is it an unpopular work, or one that isn't as well-made, for example, as others? Next comes the provenance and the exhibition history, meaning who owned the artwork in the past, if anyone, and where it has been shown, like museums, galleries, or elsewhere. Finally, there's the current art market for any particular artist. All of this comes together to paint, forgive the pun, a portrait of the worth of a work of art. But there's also another element that's just as important, and that's art history. The background all about this artist, his time period, his career, and so forth. So to better understand why New Couchet sold for such an unheard of price at this point, we need to look a little bit closer at all of these factors, beginning with the artist himself and his own personal history. Amadeo, or Dedo Modigliani, was the youngest of four children born to Jewish parents in Livorno, Italy in 1884. Though Dedo's parents owned a successful mining company, his early childhood coincided with an economic downturn in Livorno that eventually resulted in his parents' business collapsing and ultimate bankruptcy. Though they eventually made it through this utterly difficult time, things weren't smooth sailing for Dedo and his family. He was plagued with poor health throughout his life, beginning with a pleurisy diagnosis at age 11 and then with tuberculosis several years later. In a way, his story is similar to that of Andy Warhol's, whose childhood we discussed briefly back in the first season of this podcast in 2016, 
because Modigliani, like Warhol, was bedridden for long periods of time, and he was introduced to literature, poetry, philosophy, and most critically, the visual arts during this time period to pass the time. Once he was sufficiently healed and in his early teenage years, he began taking drawing lessons, enjoying the process so much that he soon gave up his regular schooling altogether to study exclusively with his drawing teacher, Giulielmo Micheli. After that, it was on to art schools in Venice, and then, finally, Florence. There, he was introduced to Manuel Otis de Zarate, a Chilean painter, who spoke very highly of a particular group of artists living in France, Paris, to be specific. The Impressionists, he said, had been doing something incredible, and these artists, following in their footsteps, whom we today call the Post-Impressionists, they were just as fascinating. Intrigued by Zarate's stories of these avant-garde makers, Modigliani determined that he wanted to be in the thick of the action, and he moved to Paris in 1906. Once in Paris, he soaked up all the city had to offer, especially the art in its many world-renowned institutions, eating up everything that the thriving art world of early 20th century Paris had to offer. From admiring the old masters at the Louvre and other museums, to enjoying the most cutting-edge and experimental works on display in small local galleries. And as a person so seriously interested in the art world, he couldn't help but become familiar with some of its key players. Juan Gris, Pablo Picasso, Henri Matisse, Chaim Soutin, Maurice Utrio. And the laundry list of pals and influencers extended to those whose works he loved most of all. Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec, and Paul Cézanne especially, whose works he emulated during the early part of his career. Yet despite these connections, his work received little interest, and like Van Gogh, Monet, and so many others during and after, Modigliani traipsed from one gallery to the next, from one art dealer to the next, attempting to sell his works, find representation, or even to just land a feasible job. Now, let me warn you right off the bat that this story isn't a very happy one. Again, like Van Gogh, Modigliani found himself trading artworks for food and other necessities, sending his artwork onward just to survive. It didn't make the already unhealthy artist any healthier, and it wouldn't do much to improve his chances, either. Dedo Modigliani caught a glimmer of hope in 1907 when he met Paul Alexandre, a physician who became a good friend and a patron of his works, as he was a known art collector. And it was through Alexandre that he met the sculptor Constantine Brancusi, later known for his abstract and minimalist sculptures like his seminal Bird in Space. Brancusi's works inspired Modigliani, as did his exposure to both African and Southeast Asian art that he discovered during his visits to the Louvre and other Parisian museums. Like Brancusi, these so-called primitive works of art a now inflammatory word that was used back then to capture ideas of pure form and a kind of elemental innocence, this was hugely in vogue. And from that, Brancusi, Modigliani, and others found a particular sensation of elongation in these works to be seriously cool. After a very brief attempt at becoming a sculptor, Modigliani returned to painting, which would be his center of attention for the last five years of his life. And when he would produce paintings in his signature style, filled with seriously long and thin figures sporting mask-like faces, just like the one on one of his greatest figures, 
nu couché, or reclining nude. Coming up next, the awesomeness of Modigliani's nudes and how this particular one reached the upper echelons of the art market. Stay with us. No matter what stage of life we are in, there is never a better time to continue learning. And that's what The Great Courses Plus is all about. This streaming service has thousands of engaging lectures from top professors and experts in their fields. I love The Great Courses Plus because they offer unlimited learning at a time when I need it the most, and they offer it without the added pressure of homework or grades. Just fascinating, in-depth learning at my own pace. And the Great Courses Plus app makes it easy to learn at any time and anywhere in the world. I can even stream it through my Roku. A short course that I found particularly fun is A Historian Goes to the Movies, Gladiator Fact versus Fiction. In this course, I learned that gladiators in real life were just as amazing as they've been portrayed on the silver screen. So come for the movie references, but stay for the real history of ancient Rome. Join me and sign up for The Great Courses Plus today, and my listeners can check out any course or lecture for free. That's free access to their entire library. Sign up today using my special URL. Get your free trial at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. What does 2020 mean for small businesses? You have to do more with less. Suddenly, every hire is critical, but there are fewer resources to find the right people. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com art. This is their best offer anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com art. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. Welcome back to Art Curious. One of Modigliani's great achievements was that he successfully modernized two of art history's most cherished tropes, the nude and the portrait. For his portraits, of which his nudes are often a part, he developed a strangely uniform style of representation. Again, elongated, super-stretched-out necks, tiny mouths, and darkened, almost almond-shaped eyes that still allowed for enough individualization that each still feels like a unique person even if his or her portrait looks so similar in so many ways to one of Modigliani's portraits of another person. This, however, was enough to get him some attention, finally, at his first and only solo exhibition, which took place in Paris in December 1917. But not everyone was a huge fan of the artist's works. 
this show received some negative attention. And what's an episode of Art Curious without some kind of fascinating scandal? So, get this. To entice viewers, Berth Weil, the gallery owner, installed several paintings featuring Modigliani's seductive nudes in the front windows of the gallery. I mean, that's enough to get some serious attention right there. But, located directly across the street from Bertha Vile's gallery was none other than a local police station. And they weren't too pleased with Modigliani's nudes for one big reason. A reason that the local police chief evidently shouted about as evidence for his ire, yelling, quote, those nudes, they have body hair. Gasp, quel horreur, and pearl clutching, and all that. The police demanded that Berth Weil remove the paintings from display, and Weil, who originally balked at this request, only acquiesced after the knowledge of the scandalous paintings by Amadeo Modigliani had become the talk of the town. Thankfully, for both artist and gallery, this publicity, which surely must have been expected by both artist and gallery, meant one thing. More foot traffic and more sales of paintings. In the same year of his solo exhibition scandal, Modigliani experienced another personal highlight. He met Jean Ebutern, a fellow artist who studied with Modigliani at an art school known as the Académie Colorosi. The pair quickly fell in love and moved into a studio apartment together, and Ebutern became the center of Dedo's life, acting as both common-law wife and muse, as well as the mother of their only child, a daughter, also named Jeanne, who was born the following year. But even the professional success and personal joys that the artist was experiencing wasn't enough to overcome his ailing health, which was worsened both by frequent drug use and alcoholism. In January 1920, Amadeo Modigliani died at the age of 35, either from a severe case of pneumonia or from tubercular meningitis. Jeanne followed him to the grave, it seems, so distressed by her lover's death that she committed suicide just two days later. By simply looking at Modigliani's tragic romantic life and his somewhat minor success as an artist during a period and in a location that was chock-a-block with talent, it's hard to mentally return to the fact that, in 2015, one of his paintings would garner the second highest amount of money ever paid at an art auction. What is it about New Couché that is so special? Returning to our checklist from earlier in this episode about the factors involved in the valuation of works of art, we should first look at the subject matter here and its importance, both in the artist's oeuvre, or body of work, and in the art historical canon as a whole, as flawed as the idea of canon might be. At first glance, nude couché is just what its title declares it to be. A nude woman, lying down, reclining. It's an age-old subject in art, and while always in demand by collectors, it is not an innovation in terms of what it represents. But it is an innovation in how it is presented. Remember that stir, the great controversy surrounding Modigliani's solo show in 1917. This painting, Nu Couché, was one of those shocking works shown in Bertha Vile's gallery window that so angered the police and passers-by. Much of this is due to that much-maligned inclusion of body hair on the model, 
but is most especially targeting the subject's pubic hair, a subtle yet very candid way to telegraph female sexuality in a frank and unadorned manner. This candidness gave Modigliani's nudes a newness, a modernity that aligned him with other avant-garde artists of his time, like Picasso, and even recalled works of early trailblazers like Edward Manet and Gustave Courbet, whose works we have discussed multiple times on this podcast. For more on Manet, check out episodes 38 and 41 and episode 53 for Courbet. Like the nudes of those artists, Modigliani's women are devoid of both a false sense of modesty and any mythological context, things that were usually present in earlier, more academic depictions of the female nude. Instead, this is a raw, energetic, and very satisfying scene, with a woman's dark, pupilless eyes locking in on our own, and so we're reeled in like we're stuck in a tractor beam. In short, this work is everything. It is a synthesis of, in the words of Christie's deputy chairman and senior international director of Impressionist and Modern Art in London, Giovanni Bertazzoni, quote, the historical avant-garde, and it combines Modigliani's revolutionary capacity to look at faces and bodies with a new and absolutely modern perspective that combined geometries of the 19th century with post-Cubism and particular analysis of Brancusi and African sculptures, unquote. As we mentioned earlier, the second factor that plays into art valuation is its provenance and exhibition history. Before selling at Christie's in 2015, Nu Couchet changed hands six times before being put up for sale by the owner. Not a ton, considering that the work was just shy of a century old, and that Nu Couchet was previously owned by private collectors and thus unavailable on the open market for some time. After its initial exhibition in Paris in 1917, it was then passed along to several wealthy collectors, and we can trace the provenance, or its ownership history, all the way back. And this is rather important, because, as we know, Modigliani was well known for giving paintings and artworks away for food, alcohol, and art supplies, so it is sometimes very difficult to fully trace the history of ownership of his works. This intact, documented provenance is important for our purposes here, but also its exhibition history. An essay about this work in the Christie's sale catalog lists the numerous shows in which the painting was included in the last century, including many important institutions or events, such as the Venice Biennale, the Museum of Modern Art, or MoMA, in New York, Paris's Musée National d'Art Moderne, and both Tate Britain and the Royal Academy in London. Perhaps most significantly, Nu Couchet was included in Ambrogio Cironi's catalogue raisonné of Modigliani's artworks, which was originally published in 1958 and further updated in 1970. A catalogue raisonné can basically be thought of as the essential guide to an artist's complete works, a listing of everything known to have been created by the artist and still in existence. And while the Chironi catalog was never 100% complete due to the fact that Chironi himself passed away before he could complete it, and even though other catalogs have appeared over time in an attempt to correct or complete the record, the Chironi is still considered the Modigliani Bible, so much so that Mario Lino Bassetti, a director at Christie's, stated at the time of New Couchet's sale that, quote, if it's not in Chironi, then we, Christie's, doesn't sell it, unquote. 
Finally, how well an artist is doing in any given art market is the last essential factor of determining the worth of an artwork. And this is deceptively simple on the surface, because not all art and artists remain popular in the art market from one year to the next. Because there are fads in art, just like in clothing styles or musical genres. For example, modern art, that is, art generally from the early to mid 20th century, makes the big bucks in the art market today because people think it's cool. And also because of its relative scarcity. There are fewer and fewer Picassos around now than there used to be, and fewer opportunities for a really great one to come on the market from a private collection. More on that later this season, hint hint. It's a supply and demand thing as much as a taste-making thing. And in 2015, when this fateful auction took place, it was the perfect storm for Medigliani's success. An in-demand artist whose works hadn't been on the auction block for over 30 years, especially not one of his sought-after and ultra-scandalous famed nudes. Even so, New Couchet far exceeded what art experts had anticipated, and it crushed the previous record set for Medigliani works at auction, a price of $70.7 million set for a carved stone sculpture titled Tet, or Head, that sold the year prior at Sotheby's New York. In just one year, from 2014 to 2015, the sale record from Medigliani went up from $70 million to $170 million, a $100 million increase. Let that sink in for a moment. And there you have it, a huge sum for one single work by Amadeo Medigliani. And while there are other factors involved in such price structures and complicating elements, because I am definitely oversimplifying things here, it is still these factors that play such a big part in our story today. Just a small coda before we sign off this week. Interestingly, in 2018, another Modigliani nude, the largest of a series of reclining nudes that the artist completed, came up for sale at Sotheby's New York. This particular work was listed with a pre-sale estimate of $150 million, a fair ask considering the similar sale price of the 2015 record-breaking New Couchet. But during the auction, it sold after only one bid at a hammer price of $139 million, without associated fees and the buyer's premium. No other buyers expressed interest, it was seen as a, quote, disappointment. But it does go to show you that even the valuation of a work of art by a major 20th century figure isn't always stable, or expected, or even understandable to both those in the art world and those outside of it. Next time on the Art Curious Podcast, what happens when a private Picasso suddenly goes public? It's the true story of a sale the art world couldn't miss. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research by Jordan McDonough. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. Our audio production is made possible by Kabunki. Ask them to record, edit, or advise your show too. Visit kabonki.com. 
The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. As you know, we are a fully independent podcast, and so we have to rely on sponsors, donations, and advertising to keep us going. Please consider giving a few dollars to help us out, and thank you for your kindness. You can help us as well by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It makes a huge difference and helps new listeners to tune in. For more details about our show, including the image mentioned in this episode today, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArtCuriousPod. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful of the most expensive works ever sold in art history.